Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I'm joined by Dr. Lynn Wadley. She is jointly honorary professor of archaeology in the School of Geography, Archaeology and Environmental Studies and the Evolutionary Studies Institute at the University of the Wits, South Africa. Her specialty is the African Stone Age, both the Middle Stone Age, which lasted from 300,000 years ago to 25,000 years ago, and the later Stone Age that corresponds to the last 25,000 years. So, Dr. Wadley, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you, Ricardo. Okay, so... I mean, uh, I invited you on the show because uh, I really love your work. I think it's very interesting and particularly because I find it very curious uh, the ways that uh, people in archaeology uh, try to uh, make inferences about uh, human cognition based on artifacts and human remains and things like that. So, uh, I mean, could you tell us just or give us a brief overview of uh, how people can make inferences about human cognition based on artifacts that people leave behind? Yes, archaeologists use um, material culture in particular as proxies for things like cognition, aspects of behavior like imagination. But you also have to realize that because I'm a Stone Age archaeologist, I deal with tiny scraps of material. So when we're talking about material culture items, I'm not talking about large things. I'm talking about traces, residue traces, tiny pieces of stone, broken pieces of eggshell, little things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, and I mean, you've studied several different aspects of human cognition using different uh, tools and different techniques that people developed over time. Uh, I mean, and one very interesting aspect is the evolution of imagination. I mean, when you're studying imagination, uh, what can you tell about it? Do, do you, can you study the specific contents of people's imagination or just simply uh, the broad cognitive mechanism of imagination? I mean, that you know that people could use it while they were producing those artifacts. Yes. One of the things we have to realize first is that imagination involves a great deal of memory. Mm -hmm. And memory, of course, in, in the human brain um, is stimulated by the hippocampus. Mm -hmm. Now, I've been reading some things that say, for example, a London taxi driver will have a much larger hippocampus than anybody else walking on the street, simply because they need a great deal of memory in order to be able to negotiate the complex streets of London. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the brain component is really important for the development of imagination. It's, it involves creativity and it involves also a certain amount of cognitive development. 
One of the things that, that is quite controversial is that at Makapam, three million years ago, associated with Australopithecines, the archaeologists found a little pebble out of Jasper, an entirely geological find, but it had mark geological markings on it that were reminiscent of a human face. And people have been wondering ever since, is it possible that even Australopithecines had the imagination to think this rock looks like a, a, a I can't say human because they weren't really truly human possible, probably entire chance that, that that was the case. But by 300,000 years ago, um, in Israel, the Berikat Ram slab had been slightly modified. And this looks like a human figure. But again, we don't know whether this is entirely by accident or whether the hominins of the time were able to visualize and imagine in a geological form something that was a human form as well. So it's quite complicated. But I think once we get to more recent times in archaeology, we can be more certain that imagination was definitely at play. And I'm thinking here of objects like the Lion Man from Germany, dated 32,000 years ago, or the painted slab from Apollo 11, which is a, a half feline, half human painting on a slab of rock. Now, those are fantasy creatures, half human, half animal. We call them therianthropes. They can only be developed in the human imagination. They are fantasy objects. So there's no other interpretation for that. But it's relatively recent. Mm -hmm. So this activity of trying to understand the cognitive tools that people had to have set in place for them to create certain types of artifacts and what they were doing while they were creating them, it always involves at least a little bit of speculation, right? Because, I mean, we always have to try to interpret what people did there, particularly when it comes to uh, artistic behavior, uh, artistic artifacts. Uh, and, I mean, we have to be careful about uh, not uh, transposing our own culture to back into that time and forcing an interpretation on what people were doing, correct? Yes, you're absolutely right, Ricardo. And archaeologists use the word probably or possibly quite often as a result of that. <laughs> but there, there are some objects, there are some activities that cannot be performed without particular types of cognitive ability. And I'm thinking of things like analogical reasoning. Um, there, there's some activities that you simply cannot perform without that. And one of the things that I've been interested in is heat treatment. Heat treatment of rocks, because certain types of siliceous rocks, fine-grained rocks, can have their napping ability, their ability to make stone tools from them, improved by heating them to a fairly low temperature. So rocks that geologically were heated to high temperatures in nature 
cannot be used for that. Right. When I've done experimental work on heat treating, I've found that the best way of doing this is to put the rocks a little bit under the ground, under sand, and then light a fire on top of them. Because there's a very consistent slow heat that forms underground. Whereas in the presence of oxygen in a fire that's above ground, um, there are things that you cannot control like wind speed factor and so on. And rocks tend to fail when they're heated like that. But once you bury the rocks underground, you can't see them anymore. And so you then have to use analogical reasoning by feeling the temperature of the fire um, to know what temperature is being formed underground. So that that is a perfect example of how technology and analogical reasoning um, combine. Mm -hmm. So uh, you refer there to analogical reasoning and there are certainly other aspects of human cognition that people also have to have to create or use those processes, like, for example, uh, uh, the ability to plan into the future, uh, I mean, problem solving, sometimes multitasking, and those are the sorts of uh, cognitive abilities that you've also studied through different sorts of uh, human artifacts, correct? Yes. And response inhibition also, which is terribly important. Because if one takes a simple hunting technology, like setting a trap, mm -hmm. what you're doing is setting something that is going to involve action that is out of sight of you, but not out of mind, which is really important. Um, and only humans can do that. Animals will hunt directly but not indirectly. Even something simple like bringing bulbs back to a home base to cook them involves response inhibition and planning because the person who's doing it will need to take a container to collect those plant foods. So there's planning involved. And then the response inhibition of bringing the food back to the home base rather than consuming it directly in the field which is something that a baboon would do, for example, would dig out the bulbs and eat them immediately. But a human that is going to be taking care of, for example, an old person or some children back at the, the camp would bring those foods back and would then know that by cooking them, you could increase their digestibility remove things like fibers, make it much easier for old people and young people to, to chew those foods. And so even a simple action like that is quite complicated when you start tearing it apart. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that another very interesting thing and, also, and that also connects with imagination is symbolism. And uh, I think that uh, while you're studying symbolism, I mean, we're trying to understand the cognitive mechanisms that people use to produce and interpret symbols, uh, but we can also understand a little bit through them how people uh, interact with one another socially and also certain aspects of their
let's say, cultural shared cognition or something like that, correct? Yes, of course, symbolism and imagination are linked, considerably linked. Symbolism is one of those tricky things, though. You know, how do we define something as symbolic versus something that is functional? We think we know the difference, but often we impose our cultural mores on that kind of definition. We have to be careful, because think about knives and forks. You may say, oh, that's functional. But it's perfectly possible to eat with chopsticks or your fingers. And so knives and forks really are cultural, even though we may consider them to be functional. So symbolism is, is tricky. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and what about fantasy? I mean, what do you consider to be fantasy and what's its relationship with imagination and symbolism and other things like that? Yes, all of those things are linked. They're clearly uh, linked. Fantasy exists only as a product of the mind and so imagination is responsible for fantasy. And it's probably also responsible for symbolism. Mm -hmm. um, it's quite difficult for us to know the kinds of things that people were able to think about and imagine um, from a symbolic point of view. But you know, symbolic artifacts, certainly from 100,000 years ago, become very common in the archaeological record. I think once we begin to see ornamentation, things like perforated seashells or ostrich eggshell beads, we know that people are in a way being symbolic in that they're, they're trying to express a cultural identity. And expressing a cultural identity is always symbolic. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter whether you have an individual symbol but it's not really going to be socially important if other people cannot identify or read that code. Mm -hmm. Because to be meaningful, it has to be a community expression and it has to be recognized as, as such by communities. And I'm thinking here also of things like the engraved eggshell that we get from Deep Clove in South Africa about 65,000 years ago and also at clip drift in uh, South Africa of a similar period. Now, there were hundreds of fragments of eggshell that were decorated with geometric designs. Mm -hmm. The water bottles themselves, because the eggshells probably contained water and were carried by people to store water, didn't need to be decorated. But in a way, Putting decoration on something like that expresses the feeling that I am part of a particular group. And therefore, this group designates itself through this particular kind of decoration. And we separate ourselves from other groups because of our decoration. So if we look at the clip drift um, engraved eggshell, we see that although there's an overriding riding similarity in the decoration, there are also differences. And people in the past would have recognized that. It's the same kind of thing with the perforated um, seashells. Um, Marion van Haren has done some experimentation 
to replicate the Blombos seashells, the perforated ones. And she finds that during different periods, these shell beads were strung in different ways. Now, this suggests that there, there was specific patterning that is diachronically related. Um, so, so people had different ways of stringing them onto their clothing, um, their skin bags, or onto necklaces or bracelets, or whatever it was they were decorating with that. But, you know, the end of that story is that it's a cultural expression. Mm -hmm. And so it's cultural, it means that decoration is always something that occurs in a social environment. I mean, it wouldn't be the case that an isolated person would decorate objects, probably. I can't say that the individual wouldn't do that, but there would be very little purpose in it because it is usually to attract the attention of another individual or group of individuals. We have to be careful. You know, as humans, we tend to think that we're very special and very different. But animal behaviorists will be quick to tell us that so many of the cognitive things that we consider to be complex that humans do are also present in animal behavior. And referring back to decoration, if you think of bower birds, the male bower bird will set up an incredibly complex decoration outside the bower where it wants to attract the female. But my answer to the animal behaviorists is that creatures like the bower bird have that as an instinctual response. Whereas for humans, it is a cultural response. And the bower bird may do one of those things, but is unlikely to, to do a whole package of cultural behaviors and cognitive behaviors that we recognize in humans. So it's the very diversity and variability of, of human behavior that makes us so special, especially as modern uh, modern people, and I don't like to use the word modern people. Um, uh, you don't like to use the word modern people, uh, why exactly? Because, Ricardo, are we modern yet? <laughs> 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 the thing about evolution is that it doesn't stand still. We are still evolving today, and at what point do we say this is the final but the pinnacle of evolution in terms of humans. We don't know whether we've reached that pinnacle. We probably haven't. And so to call us modern um, is really, it's, it's not very smart, I think. Mm -hmm. I prefer just to say that we're dealing with anatomically, um, anatomically modern, in that sense, homo sapiens. But let's just call us homo sapiens and acknowledge that we're still evolving. Mm -hmm. I understand. But isn't it the case that when people in anthropology, in archaeology, talk about a cognitively modern human, that what they are referring to is the fact that at a certain point during our evolutionary history, we arrived at a stage where we would be able to recognize those people back then 
as similar to us as we are nowadays on the level of cognition and cognitive ability. Yes, you are absolutely right. But I prefer to use the term complex cognition because I think it's, it's less problematic. As soon as we start introducing the term modern, um, I, I have a problem with the term modern, whether it be in terms of culture or cognition. Mm-hmm. It's a personal thing. <laughs> yes, I, I was just thinking that maybe people use the, the word modern uh, to signify that maybe they are referring to humans or uh, uh, humans at a certain stage of evolutionary development that are equal to us. And so they use the word modern to say that, okay, from that point on, uh, those people are like us. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. Yes, you're absolutely right. You are. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, th- there's another thing in your work, a very interesting concept that has to do with the reflexivity, reflexivity sorry, between technology, cognition and imagination. So c- could you tell us about that? Yes. The first thing to say is that when we create material culture, we're not necessarily acting on an object. We are interacting with an object. So there's a a reflexive um, interaction there. We are acting on the object, but the object acts on us as well. And what I mean by that is that any form of technology or action Um, It's not static. When we're doing anything, whether it be a crossword puzzle or napping a stone tool, it is stimulating our brain. And the, the neuroscientists can take people to do an MRI scan on their brain after such an activity, and they can see exactly which portions of the brain are being activated. When people are extremely creative, There are many neural connectivities in the brain that take place. So the more stimulating the activity, the more areas of the brain are activated. So when we are working with our hands and our brains and some object, we are stimulating our brains. And this is why I say there's a reflexive action that is taking place. I think this is really important because It helps to show us the exponential development that we get through prehistory, beginning round about 100,000. And of course, you know, the dating is never all that secure. But round about that time, we start seeing a great many technologies developing. And my argument would be that, that once you sit on that path, the exponential growth is caused by this kind of a reflexivity that takes place between the brains, the actions, and the hands. And so by 100,000 years ago, we see the beads developing, engraved um, ostrich eggshell, engraved ochre, the complex adhesives that, that I've talked about in quite a lot of my work, and a whole lot of things like that, and that they led to further developments. Because I found with my own experimentation 
that the more experiments I do, the more questions I develop. And therefore, the, the more new experiments I have, and the whole thing is, is a sort of a growth spiral. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's very interesting. Uh, and so that also includes an element of cultural evolution and cultural uh, and cumulative culture, right? In the sense that, I mean, probably one of the reasons why 100,000 years ago or so, we sort of had an explosion in terms of uh, the types of artifacts that we were able to create and that we developed uh, also had to do with the ways we were able to create culture, to sort of accumulate it, and also the social interactions that we established that allowed for people to communicate, for example, how to produce those same tools uh, and so on. Yes, I think cumulative um, culture and technology is a really good way of describing it. And perhaps we, we can realize that in the initial stages, there may have been one or just a few very creative people who thought of new ways of doing something, creating compound adhesives or whatever it was. But other people then quickly saw the advantage of that and began to use it. And that in turn allowed more cumulative technology and culture. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So you just referred to compound adhesives and in your work you study uh, compound adhesives a lot and also compound paints. So could you tell us what is special uh, about those things and the, uh, I mean what we can learn about human cognition by studying them? First, we have to define what an adhesive is. A glue is a simple product that can be used as a paste to stick one thing to another. So gum, resin on their own, birch tar, these are glues. An adhesive is a compound product. So it would start with something like a gum or a resin and mix another product or several products in Things like um, beeswax, powdered ochre, charcoal, powdered bone. There are many things that can be put into a compound adhesive. But what I've discovered through my experimentation is that they all involve low heat once the mixture has taken place. I find it very difficult when I was doing the experiment to do them successfully and I realized that Multitasking is a terribly important component there because you have to be controlling the temperature of the fire to make sure the adhesive doesn't bubble or not have it too low so that the adhesive drips off the tool that you're trying to stick onto your handle. So there are many things that have to be controlled simultaneously. So multitasking is really important, but of course planning also because a number of ingredients uh, have to be assembled before you can start this. It's no good being halfway through the mixing process and realizing that one of the essential ingredients is missing or that you've forgotten to collect the firewood. So planning, um, all those things are, are really terribly important. 
what I what I established was that heat is important because if you're going on a hunt and you need to manufacture a spear, for example, you can't wait a whole week before that spear is ready to go for the hunt. And when I tried to mix my compound adhesives and let them dry naturally, they took six days before they would set hard enough for the tool to be used. And so the heat is an important part. So we also need to know that the people at the time of making such things would have had control of fire. In other words, they were able to reproduce fire. And this is something that, that archaeologists They've never been able to find how the very earliest of the Stone Age people reproduced fire. We know that they could collect it, that they could perhaps curate it for some time, but how and when they learned to reproduce it still escapes us. So that's that's the, the compound adhesive story. Okay, uh, let me just ask you one thing. Since you study the Middle Stone Age that ran from around 300,000 years ago to 25,000 years ago, I mean, it includes uh, different uh, hominin species, correct? So the types of artifacts that you study, uh, do they come only from Homo sapiens or also from other species? That's a very difficult question, Ricardo, and I think that the, you know, the finding of Herman Aledi has thrown us all into a bit of a quandary, because now when we visit a Middle Stone Age site, I don't think we should be too confident that we're necessarily dealing with Homo sapiens. Who knows, Herman Aledi may have been there too, but Herman Aledi has never yet been discovered in a home-based site, um, only in a burial site. So there are a lot of things that we don't know, a lot of questions that we still have to follow up on. Mm -hmm. uh, and by the way, when you were talking about compound adhesives, one question came to my mind that is, uh, because we live in these modern, uh, technologically advanced cultures, scientific cultures and societies, I mean, I think that sometimes it is very easy for us to dismiss uh, the difficulty or how difficult it was to produce certain types of tools and artifacts that people left behind from the Stone Age. And I mean, you were talking about the several different steps that people had to follow to produce compound adhesives. And it is in fact uh, highly complex and cognitively demanding and even for us as uh, okay you don't like the word but I'm going to use it modern humans uh, probably with the with the things or the uh, the tools that we acquired for example in school it would still be very difficult for us to do it right yes it would Students of mine in the past have often talked about primitive people in the past. And when they've done that, I, I say, right, at the next practical, we're going to make stone tools. And they very quickly learn that it's really not that easy. And it helps them to develop a new respect for people in the past. 
Because one of the things you need when you're going to be manufacturing a stone tool is a mental template. It's not simply a question of bashing one rock against another and then producing a stone tool. You need to have in your mind a pretty good idea of the kind of product that you're seeking in its completion. And so things are generally much more difficult than we give it credit for in our modern times. So those people in the past were really skilled technicians. We have to respect them for that. <laughs> right. And also because to create those types of materials, uh, many times they had to collect ingredients from many different sources. Right. Yes, and they seem to have a really good idea of the quality of the ingredients that they collected. Because sometimes when I've collected ingredients for my experiments, I realized that I didn't have the, the knowledge, the sort of folk chemistry that they did. And when we subject some of the items that they use to chemical tests, we find that often they use the best quality. And intuitively, they seem to have a knowledge of what the best quality ingredients were. So once again, we have to respect them for that. Mm -hmm. Of course. So at the very beginning of our conversation, I think, uh, or when we were talking about modern human cognition, you refer to the fact that you don't like to use the, the word modern because in a sense we are still evolving and we are not the last step in, evolu in evolution, let's say. So uh, are you also interested in studying uh, modern uh, or contemporary technology and I mean the sort of uh, cognitive tools that we have at our disposal to create them and also maybe how certain types of technology uh, might have an effect in, in the evolution of our cognition. Yes, what I'm really interested in is archaeological science. And archaeological science has developed also exponentially in the last few years. And I like to make use of all those tools for interpreting the material culture and other things that I have to deal with. And so we have a wide range of, of things available to us these days. Things like FTIR and scanning electron microscopy, a whole range of tools that enable our interpretation to be scientifically evidence-based. And I think that's important because it's much easier perhaps to dream up a theoretical interpretation for something, but getting the evidence base for that is more difficult. But these days we have the modern technology to enable us as archaeologists to do some of that. So I'm, I'm really interested in applying archaeological science. But to come back to um, sort of less es esoteric things, if you think about the sort of technology that we use all the time, the sort of technology that you and I are using at the moment, things like um, Facebook or, you know, other social media, I think that those have developed much more quickly than the social ability to cope with them. And I find that quite interesting too, because 
we can perhaps use that as a psychological point of study in the future. You know, we, we have all these technologies, but we haven't yet developed really good etiquette to deal with them. And I think we all see examples of that every day in our own lives. But if we look back in the past, does that mean that technological development preceded social or cultural development? Probably not, because I think the social need was always there first, and people then developed the technology that su suited their social need. So it's all a bit tricky, but something we can study in the future. <laughs> so you think that it's possible that there are certain types of technology that we have created and have at our disposal nowadays that might be getting ahead of our of the ways we have uh, organized our societies and uh, i mean that we are not well prepared to establish proper social relations through those types of technology yes what i'm saying is that our technological development seems to have overtaken our social maturity Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And do you think that by being exposed to these new types of technology, also because they allow for new types of interaction, that they might play a role in, in how our cognition will evolve in the future? Or? Yes, I have no doubt that um, the greater our technological ability, the more our brains will develop. And if we don't destroy ourselves before we allow that to happen, we should become much brainier in the future. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, uh, do you like the concept of evolutionary mismatch in the sense that uh, we might have created societies that are so distanced from the ones we've evolved during most of our evolutionary history uh, that might, uh, might be responsible for creating certain problems that, uh, I mean, are hard for us to deal with because we are not uh, cognitively prepared for them. Yes, you may be right there, but perhaps it's not the cognitive um, unpreparedness that is the real problem. It may be the emotional and the social unpreparedness. But you know, the wonderful thing about humans is that we're adaptable. We wouldn't be, you know, the, the, top, the top of the heap at the moment if that wasn't the case. And so I'm sure that ultimately we'll get around those problems. I'm, I'm a confident person and I'm optimistic. So I think humans will prevail. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let me just ask you perhaps one last question. Uh, since you've been studying um, humans from the past and cultures from the past, uh, I mean, uh, uh, when you study uh, different cultures and different societies, What do you think is more prevalent? Do you think that people from different cultures are 
share more similarities or they are more different from one another than people used to think? I think we all have um, similarities, far more similarities than we have differences. Mm -hmm. We mustn't overestimate the difference of language, for example, or even cultural mores, because once you start digging into those, you often find that the skeleton that underlies them is completely similar all over the world, regardless of what people do, um, what language they speak. Mm -hmm. So you are, I'm not sure if this is the best word to use, but are you a proponent of what people in cultural anthropology call human universals and basically the idea that we all have an underlying shared human nature? Yes, I know that universality is, is rather problematic in, in anthropology and that often, it, that, you know, if we make generalizations that are too broad, the interpretations lack meaning in the end. So we have to be careful and I'm also a proponent of individuality. I think it's very important. Without individuality, we wouldn't have had the sort of creative innovations that we've been talking about earlier. Nonetheless, I think our greater humanity must unite us rather than divide us. Mm -hmm. So by knowing that we all as humans, even from different societies and culture, share uh, some or, the, or a basic uh, set of cognitive abilities and a basic set of emotions, for example, you think that that's a good uh, thing to transmit to people and that should unite us uh, more? Right? Yes, it should. Of course, often it doesn't, but it certainly should. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, so Dr. Wadley, it was a real pleasure to talk to you. Uh, before we go, would you like to tell people what are perhaps uh, the best places on the internet, maybe, or the best ways for people to get in touch with your work? I think that if people are academics and they look on ResearchGate, they'll see a lot of my work there. But if you simply Google me, if you're not able to get on to ResearchGate, you'll find some work there too. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So I will be leaving links to all of your work in the description box of the interview for people to go and check it out. It's very interesting. And again, it was a real honor to have you on the show and to talk to you. I love your work. So thank you very much. Thank you, Ricardo. Hi everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Any amount, even just $1, would already be a great help.
Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and subscribe to the channel. You can also support me on PayPal or Subscribestar. All of the links are in the description box of the interview. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons and PayPal supporters Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perel Galarsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Condriano, Yane Henninen, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, John Connors, Adam Castle, Vega Gidi, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, David Diaz, Dr. Jerry Muller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, and Bo Weingart, and also my three producers, Isar Webb, Rosie, and Jim Frank. Thank you for all.